Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today is Monday, May 23rd, and the beginning of another great week here. Just a few announcements. I am, as uh, regular listeners know, still in the midst of a change to my web hosting provider, and we're really getting down to the nitty-gritty um, switching over to Bluehost, which will be hosting my now 11-year-old website. I've kind of held up launching the Patreon and possible Substack. I think we're going to start with just Patreon for new content. I can't really post any new written content to the site until this transition is over. So we're going to have a couple more days, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, the transition will be finished and I'll be able to start posting new content, make my members only Patreon content available to everybody. And we're really going to go from a crawl to a dead run here at Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. So thanks everybody for your patience and hanging in there. And just for the rest of the week, I've got some great guests coming up. I have Walter Block who will be with me on Wednesday to talk about some of his academic work and how it supports this resistance to freedom that so many of us can't understand. He's got an explanation for that. In contrast to all evidence that, for example, free markets produce the best outcomes by far and unanimously over socialist systems or other kinds of centrally planned economies, People still are resistant to the market and a priori assume that the government is the solution to every problem. So he's going to be here to talk about that. I'll also have Mario Balaban from Project Veritas on to talk about some of their latest videos and some of the ramifications of their work. So should be a very exciting week here. Today, I wanted to talk a little bit about the economy as a whole, this whole idea of resistance to the market and private property and a few assumptions that I think most people make, even people who are pro-capitalism for 
lack of a better single word. And one of them is this idea of the working class, or, and you may hear people refer to working families. And I want to point out, first of all, that those things don't exist, or if they do, they apply to everyone. I mean, which families do you know that don't work? Okay, the families of business owners work. Small businesses, they generally work harder than everybody. Jeff Bezos's family works, and so does your local uh, grocery store's cashiers and assistant manager of the deli. Every family works. So this whole idea that there's working families and then there's this other group of families is it's kind of a Marxist thought. I'm not saying that Karl Marx invented the term working class, but certainly cemented them as separate from everybody else in everyone's mind. And of course, people like Bernie Sanders and even Donald Trump say that the economy is rigged against these so-called working families. And I suppose what distinguishes what they call a working family from families that don't belong to that group is that in a working family, by their definition, I think that no one in the household is a business owner, or at least nobody in the household employs other people. And so they make these statements and come up with these policies that are supposed to help this different class of people who don't own businesses and therefore are employees of the people who do as if they need some sort of extra assistance. But I want to give you a different way to think about working families, and that is this, that every family is a going concern. It's a business. And I know people are going to draw all sorts of strange conclusions from that statement, but it's basically true. Every household sells a product to the market called labor. If you have one or two parents of a family of four, let's say, that both are employees of some other business that they do not own. They are, in fact, selling a product called their labor, their specialized labor, skilled labor on the market to customers. And their customers are the people who employ them. And by the way, this is another term, skilled labor. So all labor is skilled labor. Digging ditches requires specialized skill. And if you doubt that, I'd like to have you go out and take some pediatricians or some college professors and try to dig a ditch that works without giving them any help or instruction. And you're going to find out that, in fact, ditch diggers have some very specialized skills, as do janitors, as everybody else that we would consider unskilled labor or who are called unskilled labor, in my opinion, incorrectly. So every household is a functioning business selling a product that has revenues in wages, which is simply the agreed upon buying price of the buyers of their products, the purchasers of their products, namely employers, and they have expenses. And this is where I want to agree with the terminology that Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders use, that yes, the economy is rigged against these so-called working families, but not the way that they say that it is. Because for every politician and just about everybody you talk to, the rigging of the economy is that it's too capitalist. It's too free market. We don't take enough away from people who happen to 
do a little bit better or extremely better than other people in terms of income and wealth accumulation. We don't limit freedom enough. We don't regulate enough. For Trump and the MAGA movement, free trade is our main problem here. We have other countries like China that are selling us products more cheaply than we can make them ourselves. And this is supposed to be a bad thing, that we should instead tax those imports heavily so that people would be just as well buying the products from domestic manufacturers, which of course makes them poorer. Because if I have to spend, let's say, $200 on a pair of sneakers that I could otherwise buy for $75 if they're imported and tariffs are not high or are non-existent, well, buying from the domestic manufacturer means there's $125 that I would have had left over after the sneakers to spend on something else, but now I just get the sneakers. So, of course, this makes me poorer, regardless of whether China has tariffs on their imports or not, I am better off with no tariffs here. It raises my standard of living. Now, on the other side, Bernie Sanders says that business owners are allowed to keep far too much of their own money, that we need to be taking a much larger portion of their profits away and just distributing it to other people to spend on consumption. So I think people are pretty familiar with both of those arguments, which I don't agree with. But here's an argument for why the economy is rigged against the average household consisting of adults who are employees of other companies, and that is it's rigged to keep them from accumulating capital. What do I mean by that? I mean long-term savings and accumulation of wealth. Now, when you think about a household as a business that is selling a product called labor into the marketplace... You have to say, well, what are the expenses of this business? Well, in order to supply that labor, the human beings who produce the labor, produce the product, have to have a roof over their heads. Housing. So that's an expense. They have to be fed because if they stop eating, they're going to cease to exist, right? So they can't work and they can't produce their labor product without eating. So you've got food. You've got housing. You've got food. They have to be protected from exposure to the elements. You need energy for heating or air conditioning. One could argue that maybe air conditioning is a luxury, depending on where you live. I lived in Florida for 10 years. I would call it a necessity, but whatever. You at least need heating because people do die of the cold a lot more than they die of the heat. You need health care. That's like maintenance on machines because for this going concern, this business, the machines are the people and they need to be maintained. They need to be kept in near optimal condition so that they're not disabled and unable to produce the product they supply to the market. Now they need gas for their cars to get to their place of employment if they don't work from home, another expense. And I could go on listing things that are all expenses for this business, but guess what? Compared to what most people think of as a business in the United States, some registered entity that sells a product other than labor to the market, although in fact many registered businesses do sell nothing but labor. What does a doctor sell or a lawyer? These are professional services. They're basically selling their highly specialized labor. But the average person that's selling labor, there's a disadvantage that that person has or that family has 
that no registered business has, and that's that they cannot deduct their expenses before they're taxed. There is no logical reason why a family that has all these expenses in order to provide a product to the market called labor shouldn't be able to deduct those before they are taxed, but they're not allowed to. Yes, the average household with, let's just say, two working adults that's making combined $100,000 gets to write off a certain amount or deduct a certain amount from their taxable income. And I think it's something like $24,000 is the combined standard deduction, if you don't itemize, that the average couple can take. And you might get some credit for having children as well. But they're not allowed to deduct their rent, their utility bills, their health care bills that may be provided by their employer pre-tax. So depending on whether they're given health insurance, and there are all kinds of interventions into the economy so that people who don't have health insurance through their employer might get a break on this. So we'll put health care aside for a moment. But all these other expenses, their gasoline to get to and from work, this should all be a deduction. You shouldn't be taxed on that. You are a business, and these are expenses that are necessary in order for you to deliver your product to the market just as much as the rent of a brick-and-mortar grocery store is an expense for them to provide groceries to the market. So a lot of people might say, well, come on now so-called working class people with lower incomes don't pay a lot of income tax. And that's true. They don't. Although I would argue that if you're paying four or $5,000 in income tax a year, that four or 5000 on the margin of all of your earned revenue does a lot more economic damage to your ongoing wealth accumulation than let's say $4 million does to Elon Musk or whomever. And if you notice, a progressive income tax punishes you more the more you make. So let's just say that you take a second job and you push your income from 75000 up over a hundred. Well, you're going to pay a higher income tax or wherever that line is these days. It always gets moved with inflation. But notice what you can't get away from, and that's the payroll tax. And that's 15% right off your gross revenue. And no, it's not seven and a half percent as a lot of people think, well, you know, the employee only pays seven and a half percent and then the employer has to pay the other seven and a half. Everybody who's ever written a business plan knows that whole 15 percent is coming out of your compensation. When I write down a business plan to see what it's going to cost to run a particular business and we start putting down jobs that we're going to need to fill in order to make the operation run and sell the product we're going to sell, we're working backwards from projected sales, not forward from our costs. So in other words, we project how many widgets that we're going to sell total given certain market conditions and competition. And then when we construct our business plan, we basically back into what we can afford. So when I've written business plans and looked at the various employees we would need from managers to laborers to supervisors, whatever, we project what those positions are going to cost and what's the most we would be able to pay for each of those positions, not what's the least. 
And if we know from our knowledge of the market that let's say a middle manager is making $75,000 a year, then we have to put those payroll taxes on top of that person's monetary salary along with any benefits. And that's the cost we have to project for that kind of an employee. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. We help each other when we don't mean to. That's what we call the invisible hand. Something no politician understands. Just leave it up to supply and demand. And so that 15% for payroll taxes is coming right off your gross revenue, really. After you get this $24,000 deduction and just, you know, for anybody out there who doesn't already know if you're very young, no, in this day and age, you can't even afford a very modest apartment or home and food and gas to get to and from work on $24,000. So what are they really doing to you with these payroll taxes? I'll give you an example. Let's just say you were a small business owner. And this business takes in $500,000 in gross revenue a year, 500000 all sales in, and it costs you $400,000 in expenses to run that business. This could be a subcontractor in the construction field, drywall person or carpenter, whatever. Those are pretty small numbers. But if you took in $500,000 in revenue and you had $400,000 in expenses, and you have 100000 left over, that's a pretty good income. You're not buying a yacht with it or anything like that, but you could live a pretty comfortable life outside of a major city, certainly not in Manhattan or Chicago. But if you lived, let's say, in western New York, you could do reasonably well on that 100000 Now, of course, on that $100,000, you're going to have to pay some taxes. And after you get your deductions and get your taxable income down, then maybe you're down around 70000 and that's what you're going to be taxed on. And you'll pay 15% for payroll taxes, and then you'll pay some income tax. But what if I came along and said, we're going to tax you 15% on the whole 500000 Well, what is that? 15% of 500000 is $75,000. So out of that 100000 that you had outside of your expenses, now you've only got 25000 left. 
You follow what I'm saying? That's what they're doing to every, and I'm putting the air quotes up, working family that sells a product called labor to this artificially separate group of people called employers. I say artificially because even though economists have always talked about people in these kinds of groups, there really isn't anything different from the employee selling labor to an employer and a B2B business selling, let's say, rubber gaskets to some manufacturer. But notice how they're taxed differently. And what does that do? That prevents the average family consisting of two adults working as employees for a registered business from accumulating any capital. And what do you get in return for this? You get Social Security, which I've done more than one episode, is a Ponzi scheme. It's a ripoff. And you get Medicare, the promise that we will pay your medical bills during the last few years of your life. Now, a big portion of that is Social Security. And as I've said on a previous episode, zero amount of the money that you pay in goes towards your retirement. Zero. So right now, actually, Social Security is not collecting enough even to meet the present obligations it has to people who are collecting the checks right now. But it wasn't always that way. For most of my life, Social Security was actually collecting more and leading people to believe they were saving the difference. Now, the fact that even 20 years ago, two-thirds of all money collected was going out to present beneficiaries should have told people that, of course, the money that you're putting in is not going to be enough, even without inflation, to sustain the payments made to you later. It's even worse than that because 100% of the money collected for the entire program's history has been spent immediately the minute the government gets it. And what they used to do when there was more money collected than they needed to pay out to beneficiaries was they would spend that money, that extra money, and put a treasury bond in what they called a trust fund, a treasury bond being merely a promise to tax people in the future to collect the money they owe you. And of course, that's what the Social Security Act is. That's why I say it's a Ponzi scheme. It's a scam, but that's what you're being taxed for. And then the other part of it is supposed to go towards Medicare, which is grossly underfunded, far more than Social Security. It's popular with the people who have attained the age of eligibility because it just takes all the worry away about paying for any medical costs. Now, of course, had people been allowed to keep their earnings, their profits all of their lives, they would have plenty of money and there would be a vibrant market for health insurance for elderly people. And they would be capitalists who could make money off the money they had earned. Now, I know we have things called 401k accounts where you do become somewhat a capital owner under the rules of the government, highly regulated. It's regulated what you can own, and what that means is you get to own what they want you to own, what stock indexes they want to go up. You can only use the funds once you're 59 and a half years old, and at that point when you start drawing those funds out, you're not taxed at capital gains like other owners of capital are. You're taxed at the income tax rate. So 
There's another little ding that you take. This whole system is rigged against so-called working families. I'm always going to put the air quotes up when I say that from accumulating any capital. And what happens when you get older and if you needed nursing home care? Well, that system is rigged to deprive you of any wealth that you could leave to your family. Why? Because nursing home costs are guaranteed by the government. So they don't operate in a market. They decide what their prices are going to be and they just charge you. And when you run out of money, they can just charge the government and get paid from the government. Anybody who's middle-aged who has older parents or grandparents knows that this is what they do. Modern medicine keeps us alive longer and longer, and that's a good thing. At a certain point, you may need nursing home care, especially if you don't have younger family members to help you, and then they get you in there and charge you $15,000 a month until you run out of money. And then they can just charge the government. Now, some people might look at this and say, well, without the government, these people would just be out on the street. Well, I'll tell you, I've seen pictures of pre-1965 America, and I didn't see too many elderly people lying in the streets. But this program, Medicaid, a large portion of whose expenses is long-term care, not a majority, but a big chunk, whatever its intentions are supposed to be, is a wealth extractor. Eventually, it will deprive you of all your wealth, the house that you spent 30 years paying for, if it took you that long. It leaves you penniless. And again, this is a mechanism, whatever its intentions, which deprives working families from becoming capital owners and capitalists. And of course, the very last element of this wealth extraction mechanism of the rigged game is, of course, the monetary system which forces you to become a speculator in a market that most of us are not qualified to be in, namely the financial markets, stocks and bonds. During the 19th century, under the gold standard, nobody had to buy stocks and companies. They could just save dollars. And those dollars that they earned in, let's say, 1840 were worth more in 1870 than they were in 1840. That's the natural outcome that you would get in a free market with honest money. As society becomes more productive, everything becomes cheaper. And that's how life was throughout the 19th century. As I've said again on some previous podcasts and in my book, It's the Fed Stupid, the experience of people wasn't their grandfather saying, you know, when I was your age, I got that for a nickel and now it costs a dollar. It was the other way around. Your elderly grandfather would say, back when I was your age, that was a lot more expensive. I had to work a whole week to buy that thing that you've now bought with an hour's worth of labor. That was the general experience of even the so-called working class during the 19th century. Living standards went up. They skyrocketed. So how would nursing home care exist without Medicaid? Well, it would be a market. And there would be a need for these services, but the people who provide them would have to figure out a way to provide them at a cost that their customers could afford. And this goes for healthcare in general. More than half of all healthcare spending now is government spending. So we don't have a market in healthcare. We have a centrally planned economy. And in centrally planned economies, the costs go up and the quality goes down. 
Now, we don't have laissez-faire markets in anything in our modern economy, but we do have sectors that are much more laissez-faire than, let's say, healthcare. And you don't find that businesses can survive in those sectors charging prices for their products that the majority of their customers can't afford. These are simple cause-effect relationships that you don't need a PhD in economics to spot. It's not that these government programs exist because there's high prices. It's that there's high prices because these government programs exist. And I'm going to have Walter Block on on Wednesday to talk about why we will bend over backwards to deny these very obvious things like the baby formula shortage being caused by the FDA limiting competition. Like I said, you don't need a PhD in economics to spot that. That's what the FDA does. It limits competition. That makes prices go higher and quality go down. Now we have all sorts of excuses for why the FDA should exist and really none of them bear up to much close examination, but it is undeniable that they limit competition. The very act of not allowing some products or companies to come into the market limits competition. So that's undeniable. But getting back to the main subject here, every part of the system is rigged to keep working families from becoming capital owners and capitalists. Now, people do, of course, break out of that cycle and in the United States, the opportunity to do that is not the best of all the countries in the world, but it's better than most. But you have to overcome all kinds of handicaps to break out of the, quote, working family position and into the capital owner position. And everybody's not designed to be an entrepreneur either. Some people could just be capitalists, which is different from an entrepreneur. And in fact, there were many working people, mechanics in the 19th century who in their retirement years funded small businesses for a return on their investment. And the bottom line is, is that the government doesn't consider you capable of making your own decisions, of managing your own affairs. And so what it does is it constructs a system that extracts all of your wealth over the course of your life and puts you on the dole at the end to scrape by on whatever they hand out to you, which could be changed at any time. So that's my thought for the day for you is to think about how it could be because we could have an honest monetary system. We could be back on the gold standard or something better, something that can't be inflated at will by a central bank with political motives. We could have you just keep all of your accumulated earnings or at least be taxed like a business, which is what you are if you are a household with employees working for what we call registered businesses. You are a going concern, but you're taxed much more severely than businesses producing other products. That's the way the economy is rigged, and it will never change as long as people have what I call the anti-capitalist mindset. I didn't coin that phrase, but as long as people have this natural inclination to be suspicious of private property and free markets, this is the trap you're going to be in. And it doesn't have to be this way, but you have to make the choice that there are no guarantees, but you're allowed to run your own life, basically. Keep all the money that you earn. 
provide for your own retirement and health expenses and trust that the market would be there with a much better solution than Medicare or Medicaid if the market were allowed to work. Now, the proof that this would be the case is everywhere. But again, the anti-capitalist mindset prevents us from basically just drawing the obvious conclusions. And I'll leave you with one thought that comes from my very first book back in 2009, A Return to Common Sense, is that without economic freedom, there really is no freedom. You really have no control over your life without having economic freedom. I know somebody will post in the comments, money isn't everything. No, I didn't say it was. But a large part of the control you can have over your future is the control you have over the fruits of your labor. I think I said in that book that telling somebody that they're free without economic freedom is like taking all of Tiger Woods golf clubs away except for his putter and then telling him he's free to play golf. He could probably still beat me with his putter, but uh, he's not going to play the kind of golf that he could play if he had the whole regulation set of clubs. So just some thoughts to start the week, folks. Again, I'll have Walter Block on Wednesday, Mario Balaban on Friday, and I will keep you updated throughout the week. I'm hoping by Wednesday we will have this web hosting thing finished. It should be, and we'll get on to regular content posting and the Patreon. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I'll see you on Wednesday. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.